if admitting you're depressed is going to lead to people believing that you've been possessed by the devil, you're probably not going to tell people you feel that way, right? So self-reporting of this 100 years ago was a lot less easy than it is today. In addition, I think our ability to, to put a name to this and have strict criteria also has evolved over time. If you look way, way back at our attempts to, to identify mental illness, we, we didn't even have names for stuff, right? And someone tried to come up with these lists of different emotional conditions and they had this, it was like hundreds long and it wasn't useful. It took a while to get to the criteria that we have now so that when I say major depressive disorder, every other mental health professional or medical professional knows what I'm talking about. We're talking about. about the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. Beyond Depressed is a mental health podcast for people who want to know the science behind emerging treatments and if those treatments are right for them or a loved one. New therapies using psilocybin, magnetic stimulation, ketamine, and medical marijuana are bringing people much needed relief. Together, we'll take a deep dive into depression and how therapy medications and drugs can help you feel better. Beyond Depressed is hosted by Dr. Jeffrey Grammer. Dr. Grammer is a decorated retired colonel with the United States Army and is currently serving as the chief medical officer for Greenbrook TMS. He has experience in psychiatry, internal medicine, and behavior neurology. The following podcast is for information and educational purposes only and should not be considered official medical advice. Hi, everyone. I am Joe Clements, a professional podcast producer. And I have a friend, Dr. Jeffrey Grammer, who recently told me he was interested in doing a podcast about mental health and the state of mental health and how much advancement has come in recent years in the treatment specifically of depression. And when he asked me to do the podcast, I was excited to say yes. And so Dr. Grammer, as you heard in the intro, was a pioneer in the military in the treatment of PTSD and depression with a technique called trans <laughs> transcranial magnetic stimulation. Sometimes you'll hear me stumble over these words. There's a lot of acronyms in this field I've learned. And after that, became a partner at a company that specializes in that specific treatment. But Dr. Grammer, as a psychiatrist, knows a lot more. And so over the next several podcasts, we're going to talk about different subject areas. And the first one we're going to talk about today is, I think, often misunderstood, and that's depression. And so, Dr. Grammer, say hello. <laughs> yeah. Welcome, everyone, to this podcast. And Joe, thanks for working with me on this podcast. You know, my hope is over the course of these episodes that we give people out there information so they can understand the latest and greatest in mental health treatments and help them make better choices for their health care in a way that is tailored to their unique needs, as opposed to maybe sometimes the one size fits all strategy that I think gets employed. So the thing that surprised me in talking to you doing the pre-show was most people assume the treatment options for depression are very limited. It's medication or talk therapy. And we're going to learn over the next few episodes that's not the case. But the place to start is with what is depression at all, because it's one of those words that's tossed out anytime somebody feels a negative emotion. What do you think is the key question in depression and in the treatment of depression? Yeah, I think it's one of the reasons why depression gets so complicated is because... 
It's used in everyday vernacular, like, oh, I'm so depressed, I had a tough day. But it's also a clinical syndrome. And it gets tied into this idea of what we can and cannot control in the way that we think and feel. So ultimately, the biggest question for listeners out there is, do you feel like you're in control of your emotions, of your sort of day-to-day mood? And in some cases, that answer may be no. So let's go into that, right? Because there's two things in mental health, but in depression specifically, you'll hear advice. So one is, it's a medical condition. It's like a broken leg or stroke. You're not in control at all. And the other is, if you change your lifestyle habits, eat better, exercise, change your thought patterns, you're in control like that. Which of those is actually true or is either actually true? Yeah, I mean, I think sort of all of it's true. And one of the things that makes it so tough is the way our brain works is it has a kind of synergistic relationship or actually a back and forth or two-way relationship with the environment. So the way we interface with our environment is controlled by our brain, but our environment also controls how our brain functions. And if you think about it, that can seem kind of intimidating at first because it falls into, well, where am I in my self-determination with this? But every other physiologic mechanism in the body has a similar phenomenon. So if you take someone who's very athletic, okay, they can reduce their risk of injury on, like, say, the athletic field if they are exercise and stretch and do all those sort of precautionary things. The way that they play sort of in a game, for example, if they're playing a sport, can dictate the risk of injury. But sometimes stuff just happens and you get injured. And sometimes the injury was sort of preceded by a vulnerability to that particular anatomic defect. And so the brain works the same way. So you're absolutely right. Like not only are there extremes in uh, the range of severity of depression, but the way that depression can come on and the way that it influences us is almost sort of infinitely um, dynamic and full of different possibilities. So the thing that seems unique to me about depression is that everybody seems to have it or experience it, right? Or at least by label. Oh, I'm just feeling depressed. I'm just feeling down. What distinguishes I feel depressed, right? Basically, I feel sad from actual medical condition of depression where treatment or therapy is necessary. What are the differences there? Yeah, it mainly has to do with the severity of symptoms, the duration and predominance of symptoms, and then meeting certain criteria. Okay. So, being unhappy is normal at times. Okay. And the absence of unhappiness can actually be maladaptive, it can be inhibiting, right? In order to appreciate joy, some people would say we have to have periods where we feel the lack of joy. Mm-hmm. But there's a mechanism in the brain that sort of is the rheostat for how we feel. And every other part of the body that can become stuck. And if it gets stuck on the I'm unhappy or sad all the time setting, then that begins to have a cascade of events that has real world medical complications. And just to help people understand, like, in major depressive disorder, which is a clinical condition. So is everybody who's clinically depressed, is that the definition of major depressive disorder? Or is there or is there a difference? There's just like sad because something bad happened. 
there's depressed, moderate, and then there's major depressive disorder, or is any sort of actual, there's a physiological issue, major depressive disorder? So in the old days, we used to think of depression having two variants, intrinsic, meaning inwardly focused depression, and extrinsic, meaning it was influenced by outside events kind of depression. And they got rid of that because in the end, it didn't really matter. Once you develop depression, you're depressed. So major depressive disorder, okay, defines a specific condition that is characterized by what's called a depressive episode. There are other things that can lead to depressive episodes, like bipolar depression, for example, or some medical conditions, for example, can be associated with a depressive episode. What defines a depressive episode? Right. So a depressive episode is when you meet this constellation of symptoms, okay? And people see this online, but just bear with me. I, I, you can't talk about depression without going through the criteria. So uh, we'll, we'll kind of get through this. But it is the presence of being unhappy or sad more often than not, more days than not, or, and depending, a decreased interest in activities or lack of pleasure from activities. And then there's other symptoms that go with it, but you must have one of those first two, okay? And that has to be around for at least a period of two weeks. Then in addition, you can have issues with Ruminative guilt, feeling poorly about yourself, changes in appetite that can either be an increase in appetite or decrease in appetite, changes in the way that you move sort of spontaneously. We all have sort of a basal level of almost brownie movement. And for some people, they can get slowed down. So they look like they're moving through molasses. And for other people, they can actually get sort of neurotically agitated and pace and wring their hands and so forth. Is that caused by this? relationship between depression and anxiety, where if you have depression where you're also really anxious, you might have more of that movement. And if you have a depression where you're not anxious, you're just not experiencing enjoyment, you'd have lower levels of movement. Well, yeah, let's get into that in a little bit about the neurotransmitter hypotheses of depression, because I think that is part of it for sure. But you can also have sort of a restlessness, even if you're not anxious. And think about it, sometimes if someone is in pain or if they feel like they're sick to their stomach, they will pace, they will kind of rub their hands through their hair because they just feel bad and there's nothing, you can't offload that discomfort. Mm-hmm. It's not like a an elbow that you sprain and you're like, oh man, I can massage it. So sometimes that motor activity just is born out of trying to offload the discomfort. You can have changes in energy levels, typically lower energy level, issues with sleep, either sleeping too much or too little. Sometimes people get kind of a textbook 2 a.m. awakening that can be extremely disruptive. You can lose the ability to concentrate fully, which can have a huge impact with things like school and work. And then at an extreme, some people can feel so badly that they begin to have thoughts of suicide. And a lot of times they're what we call ego dystonic. So they don't even want to think about that. But that becomes another symptom of depression, not necessarily. What is ego dystonic? Oh, sorry. Ego dystonic means they don't want it. So some people, believe it or not, will actually have thoughts of suicide and an impulse perhaps towards moving towards suicide, even though they don't want to do that. And I know that that can sound really unusual for someone who hasn't experienced that before, but suicide and self-preservation are part of sort of the way our brain operates. And in depression, that idea of sort of sustaining our own existence can become impaired and lead to this idea that maybe I would be better off dead. Maybe my value on the planet is so low, it's not worth me living. And it's important for people to realize that's not an epiphany, right? That's not someone coming to some great awareness of what their role is in the world. That is a symptom of depression, like all the other things. And it's important for people to keep that compartmentalized as this isn't like an awareness I've had, but this is really just part of this phenomenon of depression. So when you have all those things, you have to have five total criteria for that. 
for at least two weeks, and it's causing you either social, occupational sort of dysfunction, then that would meet criteria for major depressive disorder. A lot of patients get caught up on the word major, and they're like, well, I don't think I have major depressive disorder. There is no minor depressive disorder. So don't worry about the word major. It was meant to medicalize, you know, to give credence to the medicalization of depression and not be a, a severity classification. The severity comes on the end. So it's major depressive disorder, either a single episode or recurring episodes, and then mild or moderate or severe severity. So when you match all those up, you come with your final diagnosis for major depressive disorder. So you have a tragic event happen, friend dies, and you'll have a lot of those same symptoms. Probably not the suicide, but a lot of the other same symptoms versus major depressive. Is it the presence of a triggering event that like makes sense? Well, oh, this is why you are sad as you are coping with a loss. You're going through a grieving process. Is it the presence of that or is it something else that distinguishes the two? How do you know when an emotional response is like normal and healthy versus a disorder? I think, and honestly, sometimes it's hard. Like bereavement, which you kind of brought up, if you have a a loss of a job, a relationship, a family member, you name it, that can lead to symptoms that look very similar to major depressive disorder. In the old days, meaning like 10 years ago, we actually had distinctions for that where we tried to parse out, well, is this bereavement, meaning grieving from something, or is this major depressive disorder? What they found was providers were not very good at consistently making that distinction. So in some ways, the metaphor I would give now for this is like a house fire. There can be a lot of things that cause a house fire. Some of them are external entities that come in, like if someone dumps gasoline on your front porch and lights it on fire, that's a very major external Mm -hmm. entity. If you have faulty wiring in your house, a predisposition for this that could spark and start a house fire. If it's full of Tinder-like substances like hoarded newspapers, that can be a fire. So in the end, what medicine has come up with is once the fire starts, it's it's kind of less relevant why and more important in that moment to put out the fire. Mm -hmm. Now, you can't ignore those other things. If you have faulty wiring and you put out the kitchen fire, like don't go living through your day, you might have a living room fire, right? So so you still have to address those other issues. But when the fire is ongoing, when you have that depressive episode, that becomes the point, the immediate point of clinical concern, regardless of the etiology. Do we know what distinguishes a person who has resiliency to those triggering events externally versus what distinguishes somebody who doesn't and that tips them over into major depressive disorder? Yeah, I think it's important for people to realize, well, a couple things kind of following up with what we were talking about before, I want everyone to understand that depression isn't just uncomfortable. It's not just inconvenient. There have been a few studies that show that it has real world physiologic consequences. The life expectancy decrease from having untreated depression is about equivalent to smoking cigarettes. So think about that for a mm-hmm. moment. So, you know, if you smoke cigarettes, people are like, hey, man, that's bad for your health. Like no one really doubts that, you know, at least most people don't doubt it. But for a lot of people that are depressed, they're like, oh, I'll just get through it. And I'm like, no, this is like you're decreasing your life expectancy. You're increasing your risk of heart attacks and strokes and you're increasing your risk of cancer. And if you have an existing medical disease like diabetes or cancer, your all cause mortality is going to be greater than 
other people with the same medical conditions, but that aren't depressed. Mm -hmm. So it's got real world consequences. So this is interesting because, right, what that would suggest is that there's some experience of pleasure or enjoyment that is required for health, essentially. And that that is like biologically hardwired in. So that leads, and we were talking about this before, that there may have been an evolutionary purpose of depression that hardwired. So why, why is it that a long, healthy life is enjoyment and pleasure is beneficial, but natural selection selects pretty heavily for people who can get depressed? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason we have major depressive disorder, you know, and I, I think of it like we need a range of emotions to have a healthy human experience. All right. Even though I'm not a big fan of the saying, you know, there is no pleasure without some degree of pain. I do think there's kernels of truth within that. Our ability to experience joy is somewhat dependent upon our ability to feel sadness. Right. So that we have that range. There's actually a, it's interesting. There's a medical condition where some people actually lack the ability to perceive pain. And on the surface, someone may say, hey, that's great, man. Like I would never like have to hurt. Right. Those people live their lives with recurring injuries because they don't react. You know, like I remember, you know, reading a textbook example of a child who would lean against a radiator, look out the window, not realizing they were burning themselves because they couldn't feel it. Right. And I think the human experience with sadness is the same thing. Not only does it help us to enjoy things more because we have that range and therefore we seek out those things that are enjoyable, but the things that make us unhappy, we probably want to avoid. Right. So if you're in a relationship where the person is not helping you address your needs and your goals and wants, that is unhealthy for you. And you want to feel unhappy about that. And you should want to peel back and either change the relationship or get out of that relationship. So there's a reason we need to feel sad. Now, imagine a thermostat, if you will, where you have to say, OK, well, you need to be avoiding this or understand this is not good for you. Therefore, I'm, I'm unsad. But then that gets stuck. Well, being sad is more than just an emotional state. Remember, how we feel is absolutely tied to the brain. Like you, you can't escape that. The way we think and feel is based on brain functioning. It's not some ethereal spiritual thing. And so that then leads to a cascade of sort of other biologic processes because your body is reacting to that, right? And so we can do things like raise cortisol levels, which then increases insulin resistance, which makes it harder for your body to sort of metabolize sugars, which then can cause increased fat deposition. And there's actually a condition called pseudo Cushing's of depression where people put on a ton of weight, even sort of eating the same amount of calories because of both a predilection for simple sugars and an inability to process those sugars. Okay. And that can happen in depression. And that's sort of what leads to some of the immune dysfunction and, and cardiovascular disease. There's other things that can occur too with like thyroid function and so forth that we see in depression. If that happens for a few hours, because you're unhappy with the situation, your body bounces back. But if that persists over weeks, then that starts having more long-term consequences and getting back to the house fire metaphor, then it's no longer the events that maybe led to the depression, whether it's the predisposition or environmental control, but the presence of the condition itself now becomes sort of the primacy of concern. Mm -hmm. Do we know what's going on physiologically with somebody who's depressed? You just articulated the symptoms that define it. Do we know what's going on physiologically? Somewhat. And this is probably where most of the work is ongoing right now in sort of the research world. 
you know, in the old days, we used to think of depression as being due to low volumes of serotonin. And when I went to med school, that was it. They're like, hey, Prozac works. These old tricyclics <laughs> figured work. it out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's depression. But then let's take bupropion, which is Wellbutrin. That doesn't impact serotonin. It increases norepinephrine and dopamine. It's a very good antidepressant. So right away, we're like, okay, well, maybe it's not serotonin. So then we came up with this thing, and we can circle back on this, but something called the monoamine hypothesis of depression, which is a fancy way of saying there are neurotransmitters that serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine predominantly that we think influence our mood and emotion. But that doesn't fully explain it. So now a lot of work is going into how our brain works to create this idea of consciousness and thought. And the metaphor I'll use is think of your brain like an orchestra, okay? And you have these different sections. You got the winds and the brass and the percussion and all this stuff. And they all have to play in time and in tune and all playing off the same sheet of music, right? So there's a lot of things that go into it. But the summation of that is greater than the sum of its parts, right? Or the whole of that is greater than the mm -hmm. sum of its parts. So if I get this beautiful Mozart piece being played by a band, it sounds so much greater than if I just say, well, I just want to hear the, the flutes. But if I go in and those, those, if the trumpet section, for example, is out of time, well, suddenly the whole music becomes not as beautiful. It, so even though you may have one section that's not functioning right, it influences the entire song. So within our brain, we have very similar sort of instruments. And there's sort of three major networks that people think of in this idea of this default mode network where we have sort of inward facing thoughts, outward facing thoughts, and then a system that negotiates those two. And an imbalance, either overemphasis on outward focused thoughts, where you become sensitive to environmental stimuli, or an overfocus on inward thoughts, where you become sort of a captive to your own ruminative thoughts, can be pathologic and lead to this phenomenon of depression. And then ultimately, it leads to areas of the brain, like one is the anterior cingulate gyrus, which is a part of the mid front part of the brain, that is really just that thermostat I was talking about before. And it can become in this case, overactive and depression, which gives us the sensation of unhappiness. Mm -hmm. So when someone is depressed, do they tend to be like, do they tend to be likely to seek to improve that condition? Or does the depression tend to skew their viewpoint that the condition cannot be improved? And, and like all things in this, I, I hate to keep copying out, but saying both, both, you know, um, does that relate to whether they're more outward or inward focused? Not necessarily. I mean, some of it depends on the a variety of things, but culturally is a huge one. A hundred years ago, we thought depression was associated with phases of the moon, hence the term lunacy, right? That seems preposterous now, but that was like, or now 120 years ago, 120 years ago, right? But a lot of listeners are into astrology that would probably differ there. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they actually have done studies looking at rates of psychiatric presentation in the emergency rooms on full moon days and, and non-full moon days. And sorry to say for the astrologists out there, there was no difference. But anyone who's been on call in an ER will say otherwise. So even before that, it was demonic possession. Some people still now feel like depression is because of a lack of faith or sinful mm -hmm. behavior so or something this is like interesting that. because it is described it does feel like a capture by something from the outside of you correct like what causes that perception 
that like this isn't an internally generated phenomena that this is something imposed by an outside force. Yeah. It's against your will. Well, let's go back to that thermostat model, if you will. If you were walking around your house and it was 60 degrees and your heat set on 70, it's going to feel like something's off, right? Like you got a window open, the heater isn't working. Like you know that something is not working the way it should be. And when our brains have that phenomenon occur, it does the same thing. Like, hey, listen, I've got a great relationship. My job is good, financially secure. My health is good. I just feel unhappy all the time. What gives? Why is this happening to me? And I, I think along those lines, it's important that people see that as not as their identity, not as who they are, but actually the anomaly in who they are. I see a lot of people that come in and say, I don't want to take medications because I don't want them to change me. No, no, they don't change you. The depression changes you. Mm -hmm. That gets you farther from your true self. The treatments bring you back to your true self. Think of it like taking Motrin if you have an injury, right? If you take Motrin and you have no injury, all it does is upset your stomach. You get side effects. And, and, and we anything. have an antidepressant episode that we'll talk more about that because I do think that is a notable feature is people believe the depression, even though it feels like it's enforced on you from the outside, is somehow like normative. But the medication could become like bad, maladaptive, make you something that you're not. Right. And you're right. We do. We do talk about this later on. Uh, but, you know, just to, again, give people a bit of a prelude to what we're going to talk about, this idea that, yeah, I'm doing some other intervention. I don't I don't want this to change me. Well, again, it's not changing you. the depression is changing you. So I think some people will assume sort of that almost identification with the depression, particularly sort of young adults and late adolescents, because it occupies a big- It's very trendy. There's a segment of social media where having a mental health issue is a status symbol, Yeah, which well, is bizarre, yep. but that is a thing that you can status symbol against. Yeah. And I think that's a shame because people don't do that with like hypertension. And I really would like people to kind of see it more like that. And as much as we want to bring- Well, I, can, I have a theory on why it is. Well, what's your theory? It excuses you from personal growth. It excuses you from struggle or challenge. If you can't do X thing, which you should do because of your self-diagnosed Y condition, then you get to maintain your comfort zone. It can be because of that. Let me throw out a, an alternative hypothesis for some people. If you have lived in a world where the ability to feel loved and cared for is impaired, except when you're ill, you may develop this kind of unconscious rule in your head that to be loved, you must be ill. Ah, uh, interesting. So you could also have this as a social, almost as a social mechanism for getting positive affirmation. Yeah, to get sort of that, what we would call a, a primary gain, where you get that sort of emotional food, if you will, mm -hmm. by being in that sicker role. I think for other people, it's the idea of being special. And again, late adolescents, early adults, where that whole idea of identity is being formed. Some people are like, what makes me different than someone else? And there are some easy things that people do, like dye their hair, pierce a body part that's less commonly pierced, or something like that, or get a tattoo in a visible place. All those are fine, by the way, just... But it can distinguish you from the masses, right? Well, for some people, that idea of having some identified medical condition helps them distinguish themselves from everyday folks. And that can be a factor too. It gets back to the whole idea that, again, lots and lots of causes, lots and lots of things behind it. They're often sort of a two-way street on what contributes to it. But in the end, when you have the condition, you got the condition.
So is depression more common now than it's been? Or is it merely recognized for what it is? Because there's two ways of thinking. One is that modern society and mental health are counter to one another. That this essentially isolated individualistic life where the only the things that you need are actually too easy to get. It's too easy to get water and food. So there's no pleasure in that. The things that give you ultimate status are very hard to get. It's very hard to become extremely wealthy. And there's not much middle that you can do to produce value in a modern society that that triggers depression or has depression just always been endemic and it's just only recognized recently in in western society that that's what it is yeah i don't know that anyone on the planet can tell you because we touched on it briefly before but there is sort of a cultural aspect to this and if admitting you're depressed is going to lead to people believing that you've been possessed by the devil you're probably not going to tell people you feel that way right so self-reporting of this 100 years ago was a lot less easy than it is today. In addition, I think our ability to, to put a name to this and have strict criteria also has evolved over time. If you look way, way back at our attempts to, to identify mental illness, we, we didn't even have names for stuff, right? And someone tried to come up with these lists of different emotional conditions, and they had this, it was like hundreds long, and it wasn't useful. It took a while to get to the criteria that we have now so that when I say major depressive disorder, every other mental health professional or medical professional knows what I'm talking about. We're talking about about the same thing. Exactly. So we can't go back and redo those studies. I also think there's a stoicism that was born out of like every, every generation has challenges, right? For us now, it's concerns about the world heating up and flooding all our coastal cities and things like that. Okay. But Remember, like in World War II, millions of people died and it affected the entire world. Right. And and after World War II, it was a nuclear holocaust. And before that, it was, you know, the the barbarian hordes are going to raid your village and kill everybody. Like humans have always lived under existential threat. It's not new to our species. It has probably been with us as long as it's why our earliest stories are essentially like the destruction of the Earth stories. Well, and I think, you know, getting back to your evolutionary advantage in a time where there is armed conflict, for example, one could come to the conclusion that showing a vulnerability, being the sick antelope in the herd increases your vulnerability to succumb to whatever that external threat is. So you find a lot of people that sort of live through world uh, conflict or, you know, military conflict come out with a sort of veiled stoicism that keeps them from admitting their own distress, Mm -hmm. okay? So when you go back and look at old literature, it is a victim, if you will, of the aberrations in self-report and the way that people felt about self-reporting. So that may be part of the reason why now people just, there's a term for it, people are more likely to kind of report it because it's, you know, a slightly different existential threat on the planet. So that's one factor. However, there's a very real argument to be made that in the past, we would go take our bikes and go see our friends in the neighborhood and go play baseball or something. Now you go on a social media and someone's photoshopped the heck out of their profile picture and you're comparing yourselves to people that aren't even real. Like it's not even. Yeah. And, and so this whole idea of like image and where I fit within this and this affects it's not just teenagers. You see adults are like, 
all my friends are so happy. They're going on vacations with their significant others. And I, why can't I do that? Because <laughs> every mental health professional will tell you they are not that happy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like social media is not reality. It's, it's what we, I think, wish reality was sometimes. And so I think that constant sort of comparison that we have now on these over-idealized senses of where we should be and what we should be doing drags mood. And then sort of timely from when this is recorded in 2021 here, the pandemic has really messed with people. So we think of a basal rate of depression being about 6 to 7% of the general population in any one period of time. But the CDC just put out data showing up to 25% of people are now reporting depressive symptoms. Mm -hmm. Because the things that we used to do to help buffer against work-related stress, home-related stress, our own internal demons, if you will, you know, our ability to go exercise at the gym or watch a movie or have dinner or meet with friends, all that's been impaired because of that. And we're seeing depression self-reporting skyrocket. So to get back to your original question, I think it's always been there. I think we're better at recognizing it now. So some of the inflation in rates is probably related to that. But I do think that at this point in time in 2021, because of social media, because of the pandemic, it has a unique time in history where we may see an increased rate of depression beyond what will happen in hopefully like three years. So in theory, though, that would have intergenerational effects because if you take the number of people and triple it who are experiencing depressive symptoms in a pandemic, some number of those people are going to be responsible for the rearing of children either Mm -hmm. their own children or school or whatever. And is it likely that the people raising children in that scenario who are themselves experienced depression demonstrate behaviors that make the children they are responsible for more likely to have mental health issues? Yeah, so there's two parts of this. There are definitely some genetic risk factors for developing depression. If you have a primary family member with depression, you yourself are at increased risk of depression. If you have an identical twin, even if you're raised in separate households from birth, you both will have a higher rate of depression than if you didn't share the same genetic code. And we know some of the gene locations that contribute to that, but we don't know all of them, okay? So your kids are already gonna be at risk if you yourself have depression just because they're sharing some of your genetic code. But untreated depression in a parent does increase the risk of mental health issues in their children independent of the genetics because your ability to model healthy behaviors, your ability to bond and interface with your kids, even if you think you're doing the best job you can, it's going to be influenced by the depression, right? That then influences their own sense of security and development and sense of connectedness to others. And you're absolutely right. That can then impact their long-term mental health. It gets to this point, and I think people... People mess this up. I'm going to pirouette through the minefield here, so to speak. Depression can become a very self-absorbed disease. Now, I want to be careful to say not selfish, but self-absorbed. Okay, It's not that people are volitionally not caring about others and only thinking of themselves in sort of a sociopathic way. But depression influences our ability to maintain perspective on our environment. And it narrows that perspective down over time. And we actually see that happen in functional imaging, showing decreases in metabolic activity in the frontal lobes where it helps maintain that broader perspective. So again, it's putting sort of biologic blinders on you. So as people go through this suffering, 
it is easy to underestimate the spillover and the pain that it causes those around you as well. Mm -hmm. So some people will come to me and say, I don't want to be selfish and get treatment. I need to be home for my kids or my friends or what have you. And I'm like, no, the part you may think that you're protecting them by not getting treatment, but you're actually not. The way to best protect them is to take care of yourself, mm -hmm. even if it doesn't seem like that is intuitively logical. So one last question on depression, something I knew somebody still know him comes from a family with mental illness, was would meet all your symptoms of major depressive disorder, medication failures, everything. Decides, loves the outdoors, decides to hike through hike the Appalachian Trail. Does. On the Appalachian Trail, basically no symptoms at all. Not taking medication, no symptoms. Comes back, the depression comes back almost immediately. And you hear this anecdotally in other cases. So people, you know, when they live a certain place, they feel depressed. When they leave that place, the symptoms alleviate. How much of what drives even major depressive disorder is environmental? Yeah, it can be all or none. I mean, honestly, and again, we'll, we'll use some medical metaphors for this. If you have ischemic heart disease and angina, which is where you get chest pain when you exert yourself, if you're sitting or walking, you may be fine, but the minute you do a light jog, mm -hmm. your chest starts to clench up because your heart's not getting enough oxygen. There are some people where if you simplify the environment, then that is not stressing the resiliency that gets impaired by the depression mm -hmm. and they can be fine. But if the only way you can be happy and healthy is to be essentially on what, like a vacation, yeah. like that's not adaptive, right? It's showing that vulnerability and it's not, again, it's not your fault. That is just the decreased bandwidth. Uh, so let, let me have. push... Is that adaptive in that the simplified environment is probably a return to an environment that more closely matches what humans have evolved to be in. And so what is somewhat maladaptive is like the way we live our lives in modern society with social media, media kind of stacked on top of each other and high rise condos or little neighborhoods where no one sees a tree, things like that. Yeah, I mean... You can definitely make the argument that the world is more complex now and that for some people that can overwhelm the sense of mastery and control. On the other hand, I will go back to, you know, in this case, because I'm out of town recording this, I'm going to go back to the hotel room. I will have a roof over my head. It has environmental control and I've got clean running water that I can drink when I'm thirsty. And if I need food, I go down and, you know, at Hotel Duval mm -hmm. or whatever, I can get this awesome sandwich, right? But back when the world was hunting and gathering, right? Yeah, there was some simplicity to it in some ways. But on the other hand, you lost some of the predictive stability that allows you to extend to have other interests. You're constantly, if you have to stay up all night sleeping, it was interesting, I was reading the other day about how couples that sleep together, part of the evolutional idea about this was they would sleep back to back to maintain sort of 360 scanning of their environment as they mm -hmm. would fall asleep. And dogs, initially wolves, if they had them nearby and would bark or howl was another kind of warning mechanism for that. Like, man, that would kind of stink if the only reason you had to sleep with your significant other was to maintain like environmental guard over potential external threats. So I think, again, two way street and it's sort of you know, all and none and everywhere in between in this where, yeah, the world can be more complex in some ways now. But on the other hand, it's more predictable and safe. The world was more simple, you mm -hmm. know, thousands of years ago, but 
if you got a splinter, you could get an infection and die. But, but what if humans actually don't do well in predictable, safe environments? Because, you know, yeah. take, take your dog. Like if you board your dog in a kennel where it's just in the kennel for a week, it's predictable and safe. The dog is probably not happy in that environment. So what if predictable and safe is actually one of those things that is too, like in excess becomes too much. It becomes an impairment for us. Absolutely. So everyone has their own sort of buttons, if you will, and they can be very unique. There are some people who are perfectly content with the routine of their day-to-day -day life. And for them, that they prefer that. There are some people that don't even like leaving their house because it makes them anxious, right? And they're perfectly content being by themselves. Some people don't like having other people in their life. There's a personality subtype called schizoid, not related to schizophrenia, so I don't want to confuse readers or listeners with that, but schizoid, where not only do people not have a whole lot of interest in multiple social relationships, but they can actually become overwhelming and cause that person distress. And you know, there are other people that are just the opposite. Like if they don't have those touchstones of like meeting with other people, they just melt, right? So I think the theme with that though is no matter what your environment, hunting and gathering or or you know, working nine to five. My old job when I was doing price labeling at what do you call it, big box store, where I'd sit there for eight hours with those price guns 30 years ago and just 39 cents oh. for like ten thousand times, right? You got to define purpose. Everyone needs to have some sort of purpose. And for some people, their purpose is I'm occupying this space and time right here and right now, and I'm good with that. And other people are, my purpose is right over the horizon and the journey is getting there and sort of everywhere in between. But if people don't have that purpose, I think that it becomes a big vulnerability. And in modern society, I do think it can sort of kidnap people away from pursuing their hopes and dreams mm -hmm. and so forth and get them to accept complacency. And then that then can breed that sense of dissatisfaction. If you don't like working that much, and you're working 100 hours a week, it is going to be hard to find places of serenity and happiness in that environment. So wrapping up on depression, multiple causes. There is a criteria that must be met to have major depressive disorder. Probably most of the things people label as depression are not actual major depressive disorder. They are responsive to negative stimuli, which people with a healthy level of resilience will work through. But major depressive disorder is something that requires treatment. It doesn't go away on its own. And I think I've heard you say before that if you have a relapse of major depressive disorder, it makes you more likely to have the next episode. Yeah. So each episode increases the chances of a future one. Yeah, I think one thing that I don't want people to misunderstand, okay, and that is people will use the word depression in everyday language to describe unhappiness. And that is different than when in mental health, we use the diagnosis of major depressive disorder. Okay. And most people with major depressive disorder struggle with an awareness that they have that I will never forget. I saw a patient several years ago and she was profoundly depressed. There was a speech latency. So you'd ask a question and it would take her about 10 seconds to kind of sum up the energy to even say the words. She was suicidal and couldn't focus and had no energy, was sleeping like 20 hours a day. I mean, bedridden depression. And I got done with the interview and I said, well, here's what we're going to do and to try to get you feeling better. And she said, do you really think I'm depressed? 
And I remember just being taken aback at the time, like, yeah, like you could, like on the outside, you could not be more depressed, <laughs> right? But in her world, there was this ambivalence of, is it really that bad? So I would encourage folks, it is far better to go see your primary care or a behavioral health specialist and have them say, you know, I think you're having an adjustment reaction to a difficult circumstance. I think you're having, you know, normal grief and loss because you lost your pet, okay? Then to not go at all and miss a medical diagnosis that will decrease your life expectancy, impact those around you, decrease your functioning, and really keep you from being the person that you're meant to be by overshadowing it with this constant veil of unhappiness. So I think that's a good place to leave this episode on depression. I think we covered a lot. So next couple of episodes are going to be talk therapy. I think it'll surprise most people how often talk therapy doesn't work. And then also antidepressants, how often those don't work. And that'll be the third episode here is the antidepressant episode. So anything else before we wrap up here? Yeah, I, I want to encourage our listeners to really make sure you listen into those other episodes because we're going to get into some specifics on the way people treat depression now. And then even further down the road, we're going to talk more about kind of new emerging treatments for depression like ketamine or spravato or magic mushrooms and things like that. And I think people will be very surprised to find that the treatment options out there for folks are much broader, much greater, and much more varied than maybe they had been previously led to believe. Excellent. All right. Well, looking forward to the next few episodes. Joe, always a pleasure. I will see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Beyond Depressed. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from us, make sure to follow the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. Beyond Depressed is shot and edited in the Trailway Studio at SDS in Tallahassee, Florida. Special thanks to Greenberg TMS. See you next week. This program is for educational purposes only and should not be considered or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This program does not constitute the practice of any medical care or advice. None of the products or services discussed in this program suggest endorsement for your unique health care needs. The views expressed in this podcast are the views of the host speaker. Therefore, we advise listeners to always seek the advice of a physician or other qualified health care provider with any questions regarding personal health or medical conditions. If you have or suspect that you have a medical problem or condition, please contact a qualified health care professional immediately. If you are in the United States and are experiencing a medical emergency, please call 911 or call for emergency medical help on the nearest telephone.